The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Bracing for a bounce back. Stock futures struggling to hold on to some gains right now after the Dow's worst day since June. Investors digesting wide-ranging, wide-ranging views from nearly a half a dozen Fed heads on the central bank's next move. More comments, by the way, are expected today. Adding new risk for investors, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi still in Taiwan despite objections from Beijing, the latest on her visit coming up. First it was Pinterest, now Elliott Management is at it again, taking a massive stake in a new company that's sending its stock surging ahead of the opening bell. Plus, bracing for a decision as OPEC Plus members meet today with crude hovering well below $100 a barrel. It is Wednesday, August 3rd, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan. Let's start things off on this Wednesday morning with U.S. equity futures. They are indicating at least a little bit of a modest move to the upside. Just about a 97-point gain for the Dow, about 8, 9 points for the S&P and the Nasdaq, up by just around 11. This after a mostly lower session that saw the Dow post its worst day since late June with a more than 1% loss. Transportation stocks falling more than 2%, by the way, on the day. Checking on the interest rate picture, right now you can see the 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield, 2.75%. The two-year note yield ticking just a bit lower, a hair below 3.07%. Now the 10-year, two-year spread, by the way, that difference, remember, it's still inverted. Short-term rates higher than long-term ones. It's lowest, that gap, since September of 2000. In energy markets, crude prices are showing showing at least some movement here ahead of this big OPEC meeting coming up. WTI U.S. benchmark crude prices down about a buck twenty-eight, ninety-three dollars and fourteen cents. That's about nearly one and a half percent declines. Say a similar percentage move here downside for ICE Brent crude world benchmark futures, ninety-nine dollars and seven cents. The last trade there, and then turning to cryptocurrencies. We are seeing now Bitcoin and Ether posting some gains right now. Bitcoin price is $23,306. It's up about one and quarter percent. Ether price is $1,649, up about roughly one half of one percent. Let's now get a check on the action overseas. Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with the early trade over there. A bit of a mixed picture. What's going on, Juliana? Dom, good morning. It is a little bit of a mixed picture here in Europe. On the data front, we got some fresh PMIs, the confirmed final ones for the month of July. And what we learned is that the business activity in the private sector contracted in the month of July. So we are seeing some downbeat signs on the macro front. But what's interesting is that 
equity investors seem to be shrugging that off. We've got a little bit of green on the board for the CAC 40, up about 12 basis points. Um, a bit of green for Spanish and Italian markets. The DAX hovering around the flat line. FTSE 100 here in the UK underperforming slightly, and the Swiss market pulling back a bit. But overall, fairly contained moves. We are keeping a close eye on the earnings front. A few big movers on that note. Um, Societe Generale in the banking sector posted a better-than-expected loss of 1.48 billion euros in the second quarter and announced a share buyback of 915 million euros. Hugo Boss in the luxury space trading 2.6% higher this morning. The company reported a 34% rise in sales in the second quarter, boosted by strong demand in key markets in Europe and the Americas. Meanwhile, we are seeing a sell-off in BMW. We're down more than 5%. BMW's automotive EBIT margin shrank in the second quarter, almost halving on the year to 8.2% as the consolidation of its Chinese JV squeezed earnings. Dom, that's it for now. We'll hand it back over to you. Thank you very much, Juliana Tattlebaum, live in London. Back on Wall Street, earnings showing no signs of slowing down with a number of big names supporting today, including CBS Health, Under Armour, MGM. But on top of those reports, it's been all about the Fed, with the number of regional presidents growing more hawkish by the day, seemingly. And the latest commentary right now, Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester, a voting member, by the way, of the Fed, and its committee for rates, says the bank has much further to go on raising those interest rates. Quote, it's got to be a sustained several months of evidence that inflation has first peaked. We haven't even seen that yet and that it's moving down. Mester's comments come amid a similar tone from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly, a non-voting member on the FOMC, speaking with our own John Fort. Take a listen. Do you feel like the work's almost done? Oh, nowhere near almost done. We have made good start, and I feel really pleased with where we've gotten to by this point. But let's just remember the last numbers on inflation, 9.1%. Those are far too high. But most importantly, just go to any grocery store. You know, I went to do a lot of shopping for different things over the weekend, and people are still struggling with the high prices they're paying and the rising prices. You know, the number of people who can't afford this week, what they paid for with ease six months ago, just means our work is far from done. Okay, so how high will rates need to go? According to St. Louis Fed President James Bullard, a voting member, the Fed funds rate will likely need to hit between three and three quarters and four percent by the end of the year. It currently, by the way, sits between two and a quarter and two and a half percent. That's the current range. So let's tie all of this together. Joining me now is CIC Wealth Executive Vice President Malcolm Etheridge. Uh, you, you heard, Malcolm, all of the Fed speak we just played, the quotes that we put out there. Is inflation right now still top of mind, the biggest worry for Wall Street? Morning, Dom. Uh, I think that uh, the last uh, month of earnings and earnings season being uh, n- less disappointing than, than expected, let's call it that. Uh, I think a lot of folks on Wall Street seem to be uh, viewing that as an all clear signal. Uh, and feeling a lot more enthusiastic. But I definitely think, to your point, we have to still consider and respect uh, inflation uh, as much as it should be. And as much as the Fed seems to be, I'm very encouraged by the fact that the Fed doesn't seem to be resting on their laurels here, patting themselves on the back, saying we did the really big hikes, the 75 basis points and then 75 to follow, and the rest is up to you. I actually appreciate the fact that they seem to be willing to say 
we're going to keep our foot on the gas if we need to. Uh, and we're just going to wait here to see exactly what the numbers tell us, because those rate hikes are a little bit lagging. Right. It's going to take a few months before they actually work their way through the system. But I'm encouraged at least to hear people like Loretta Master come out and say, not so fast, guys. We may have to actually intervene once again. We'll let you know. So they, they, they kind of have to say that. Right. And at this point, given the rate dynamic, given the pricing action that we've seen in, in the Treasury side of things and to a certain degree in the in the credit side of the equation for markets right now, the Fed speak is working. Right. Because we're, we're tilted towards looking at inflation. We are tilted as a as a public and even as a Wall Street kind of collective to look at inflation you are already seeing signs of it, right? I mean, commodity prices are sharply lower right now. Even gasoline prices, Malcolm, I fill up at least twice a week because I travel so much at the, at the gas station. And we're like 80 cents below where we were just about a couple of months ago, even less than that. So, so what are you then going to say when inflation starts to cool off? Is it an all clear sign? Yeah, so the challenge there is, uh, to your point, additional rate hikes may not even be the right answer. But since the Fed waited so long to do anything about the inflation that was brewing as a result of all that stimulus we've talked about uh, that was pumped into the economy as uh, in response to COVID, now interest rate hikes are really the only tool it really has at this point. Um, and at, the, at a point when we really need like a, a scalpel or some sort of surgical instrument, they really only have that blunt instrument that is additional rate raises. So I'm concerned, you know, to your point that uh, rate hikes may not be uh, as effective at driving down inflationary pressures simply because increasing the cost of getting a new mortgage or borrowing, you know, using my credit card probably isn't going to directly drive down the cost of fuel at the pump. It's not going to draw down uh, the the cost of rents or owner equivalent rents, you know, housing in general. It's not going to draw draw down food prices. So it, it is tough to strike the balance between how much is too much? Is it too late? But I, I do at least, like I said, just appreciate the fact that the Fed is not saying something to give us the uh, expectation that it sees its job as done here and it doesn't have a, too much more to do. Because that was my main concern coming into this is that the Fed would give everybody sort of a false sense of hope. All clear, guys. We gave you your big rate heights you've been asking for. Now it's up to you. All right. It seems like the Fed has a lot more work to do anyway. Malcolm Etheridge, thank you very much. We appreciate it. And be sure to tune in to the CNBC exclusive interview with St. Louis Central Bank Chief James Bullard, the voting member James Bullard. That's at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time right here on Squawk Box, a must-watch interview there. To a developing story this morning and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi in Taiwan for a second straight day. The first visit to the island by a House Speaker since Newt Gingrich, the Republican House Speaker back in 1997. Her visit coming amid ongoing heated rhetoric from Beijing, which claims Taiwan, of course, is its own territory, the so-called one China policy. Live pictures on your screen right now, as you are seeing. We are awaiting her departure right now. This is kind of the whole dynamic that we're going to see play out. We're watching right now currently live shots just around some of the transportation hubs and airports where House Speaker Pelosi is. We'll keep an eye on that. We'll bring you more details as we know more on our side here. NBC's Jay Gray joins us now from Washington, D.C. with more on the story. Good morning, Jay. Hey, good morning, Dominic. And the speaker running a little behind schedule. We had expected her to be at least on her way to the plane, but that should happen momentarily as you talk about. And look, as you said, despite their independent government, China still considers Taiwan a territory. 
And there's a warning that there will be serious consequences from China as a result of Speaker Pelosi's visit, that trip threatening the already shaky relationship between the U.S. and its biggest economic and political rival. Speaker Pelosi in a different house overnight, meeting with members of parliament and Taiwan's president as she wraps up her brief and controversial visit to the Chinese-claimed but self-ruled island. America's determination to preserve democracy here in Taiwan and around the world remains ironclad. And we are grateful to the partnership of the people of Taiwan in this mission. The speaker's unannounced but not-so-secret stop confirmed in lights on Taipei's tallest building as she arrives, and with a show of support from an unlikely source. I think it's important that the speaker did go to Taiwan. I don't think the Chinese uh, get to tell members of Congress where they can go. Beijing's response, a squadron of fighter jets buzzing the Taiwan Strait where China is conducting intense live-fire military exercises. Taiwan officials also say government offices have been hit by cyber attacks. Just a week after Chinese President Xi Jinping, during a phone call with President Biden, warned those who play with fire over Taiwan will perish from it. The White House, initially opposed to the trip, now says the president respects Pelosi's decision while pushing back on the Chinese show of force. We are prepared to manage what Beijing chooses to do. At the same time, we will not engage in saber rattling. Though it may take a saber to cut through the growing tension between the two superpowers. Yeah, and look, Taiwan's armed forces have stepped up their alert level, while four U.S. warships have moved into the waters east of Taiwan on what the Navy calls routine deployments, Dominic. All right, exercises meet exercises. Jay Gray, thank you very much for the latest there. When we come back on the show, what a big bounce in one corner of the market could mean for equities in the weeks and possibly months ahead. Plus, talk about a mismatch. Why shares of this company are sinking ahead of the opening bell. That's a big mystery chart, and that's a big drop. That's revealed next. And then later on, far from its pandemic peak, Robinhood taking even more drastic measures to stay afloat in this environment. Details when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Okay. So what you're seeing right now, live pictures on the ground in Taiwan, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi departing Taiwan after a two-day trip. 
Her next stop on this trip is now South Korea. But what we're seeing right now is that motorcade pull up to the airport. The House Speaker, part of that contingent over there, that entourage as well, getting ready to board her flight. And again, South Korea is the next leg of this Asian tour for House Speaker Pelosi. Of course, South Korea will be an important visit, a very important trading partner for the United States. But this Taiwan visit is the one that caught so much attention because of the geopolitical tensions it's caused. At this stage right now, you heard Jay Gray's report about some of the activities China is doing. They are conducting live fire exercises on their side of the Taiwan Strait. We've got U.S. naval personnel and equipment moving in on the eastern side of Taiwan on what they call routine deployments. So tensions are running, I wouldn't say hot, but they are getting warmer right now. The issue we have is that China's rhetoric with regard to House Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has almost now made it so that they have to do something in response or else they look like they don't have any credibility. The only question right now for many investors and, of course, everybody in the world is what will China do in response to House Speaker Pelosi's visit? So we'll keep an eye on that. Again, she's departing. South Korea is the next leg of her trip. Let's check out what's happening right now with yields on two-year and 10-year Treasury notes, seeing their biggest jump in almost two months yesterday as investors renew their focus on the prospects of higher interest rates from a more hawkish Federal Reserve. And by the way, those climbing rates, we have some big money managers quietly stepping back into the high-yield debt market following a steeper sell-off over the course of this year. As you can see here, that second-hand side of the chart, the right-hand side, moving higher for one big ETF and, of course, an index that tracks high-yield debt. So could this be a leading indicator for equities? Could we be seeing a little less panic in certain parts of the credit market? Let's bring in Robert Dishner, Newberger Berman Senior Portfolio Manager on the multi-sector fixed income side of things. Uh, I, I guess, Robert, if you look at the sell-off in high-yield debt, it was not unexpected. It is a risk aversion trade. If there is more recession talk, if people are a little bit more fearful about the prospects for the future economy, they tend to get rid of debt of, say, not as investment grade companies. But what does it say that we've seen a rebound like we have over the course of the last couple of months? Sure, Dominic, and thanks for having me. I guess, you know, if we take a step back, as you highlighted, right, the first half was really characterized by a few things, rising and unpredictable inflation, central banks playing catch up and rising commodity prices and stronger dollar, right? But as we're moving through the summer now and into, into the fourth quarter and first half, you know, we're probably going to get more predictable and declining inflation later in the year. Near term is probably risk still to the upside, but we should get more predictable inflation going forward. In addition, central banks, you know, Bullard's 375 to 4 looks a little less daunting when we're at 225 to 250 and still, instead of still doing QE. And finally, as you noted, commodity prices are lower by 13 percent. So we're sort of closer to the end of this peak uncertainty that we've had for the first half of this year. And, and, and as a result, we're, we're seeing uh, investors uh, taking the yield um, that's available in high yield uh, markets. Is how much is inflation part of this story? And is high yield the place to be if there is the kind of pervasive, I would almost call it, inflationary narrative that we've, that we've seen over the course of the last several weeks and months right now? Yeah, I mean, well, there's two aspects to that. One is, you know, how far will the Fed go in terms of slowing the economy down and potentially increasing defaults? 
But the other piece of it, remember, debt's in nominal dollars, and revenues are in nominal dollars, and earnings are in nominal dollars. So to a certain extent, inflation does de- deflate away the debt. So there, there's sort of two sides to the story here um, on, on the inflation aspect. And, and again, the other thing to think about, too, for the high-yield market is, you know, this is, you know, this is probably as high-rated as it's been in some time, you know, with the large percentage of, of double Bs in this market. And if you also think about it as a, as a second example, I mean, this product was actually birthed out of the inflation of the 1970s, right? Um, you know, Michael Milken did all his studies in, in showing how defaults, you were, you were getting excess returns for the default probability of fallen angels. Now, before we let you go, is there a specific part of the high-yield market that investors should be looking at as more opportunistic in terms of the place they can be for that income yield on a risk-adjusted basis? Sure. I mean, we, you know, the, the focus has really been more in, in a little bit of the higher quality, so more the double B type, type levels as opposed to some of the sector bets. I mean, that's the other nice thing about the high-yield market today versus, say, 2001 or 2015. Um, we don't have a lot of industry uh, sector risk within the, within the market. But again, you'll focus a little bit on the, on the higher end uh, range of the spectrum in the high-yield market. All right. Robert Dishner, Newberger Berman, thank you very much. We appreciate the thoughts. Have a nice day, sir. Thank you. As we head out to break, though, let's check out some live pictures on your screen right now of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her team departing Taiwan after a two-day visit at the stage. Her next stop again is South Korea. And she's, again, getting ready to board that plane. We'll keep an eye on that for you. We'll be back after this break. Swing into Seaside Golf in Ocean City, Maryland. Play like a pro at 17 championship courses designed by golf legends like Jack Nicklaus and Arthur Hills. Tee off on sweeping vistas at Eagle's Landing. Savor the coastal views of Lighthouse Sound. Or see why Ocean City Golf Club is considered one of the Mid-Atlantic's finest fairways. Whether you're sneaking in a quick round on a family vacation or going all in on a golf getaway, fun is always in play at Ocean City, Maryland. Plan your trip at OCOcean.com. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your big money movers, three stock stories of the morning. First up, you've got Starbucks. Third quarter earnings beating forecasts and revenues were roughly in line with estimates. Total same store sales rising 3 percent. The U.S. was up 9 percent, by the way, while China plunged more than 40 percent due to what else? COVID-related shutdowns and restrictions during the quarter. Starbucks says higher labor costs and other inflationary pressures weighed on profits, but that was partially offset by higher prices. On balance, what you got is a near 2 percent gain in Starbucks. And by the way, Starbucks chief financial officer will have more on the results in a first on CNBC interview coming up 8.20 a.m. Eastern time right here on Squawk Box. Rachel Ruggieri, Watch that interview. Could be some interesting signs on the consumer story there. Stock number two is Airbnb. Second quarter profits and revenues topping forecasts as rentals remain strong, even as hosts are raising prices. However, gross bookings and the number of nights and experiences booked came in below analyst estimates. 
As did the company's third quarter outlook, Airbnb says flight disruptions post a challenge towards the end of the second quarter. Those shares are down about 7% right now. And then stock number three is Match Group. The owner of Match, Tinder, other dating apps reporting a second quarter net loss and revenues misforecasts. The company's new CEO citing several product missteps and he expects muted growth in the second half of the year. Match also announcing in the head of the the head of their Tinder division is leaving. That 22 percent drop is something Jim Cramer is already tweeting about right now. And he's responding to me. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff. It's a big stock to watch this morning. Big move to the downside. Now, as we head out to break, if you haven't already done so, please follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple or Spotify or your podcast app of choice. Worldwide Exchange in audio format. We'll be back after this. Stocks. Looking to snap their slow start to the new trading month. Futures looking at a mixed-ish open right now, although they're tilting towards the green, following back-to-back losing days. Tensions rising over Taiwan. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi defying China in her meetings with leaders over there as Beijing escalates its rhetoric and response over her visit. We are live in the region with the latest. And a key meeting on crew as OPEC Plus members prepare to convene amid mounting global growth worries, how the oil block could respond and what it may mean for prices coming out of the cartel. It's Wednesday, August 3rd. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chu and for Brian Sullivan this morning. It's right around just shy of 5.30 a.m. Eastern time right here on the East Coast. And here's how stock futures are looking. We are pointing towards modest gains at the opening bell. The Dow Jones implied higher by 150 points. The S&P higher by 19 and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 65. Checking on interest rates as well. The 10-year benchmark Treasury note yield is ticking just about slightly lower at this stage right now. If I could show it to you, apparently that's not going to advance for me. So I'll show you the yields later on. But what we want to do now is get to a developing situation in Taiwan. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is wrapping up her trip there. As you can see right here on the tarmac, they're getting ready to board that plane and getting ready to take off. House Speaker Pelosi again departing. Pelosi defying some of those stern warnings from China. And her visit, by the way, marks the highest ranking U.S. official to visit the island nation in a quarter century sparking threats from Beijing of major military exercises in response. We've already told you earlier this hour, there's live fire exercises being conducted by China on their side of the Taiwan Strait. Our Eunice Yoon is in Beijing now with the very latest. And Eunice, what are you hearing from officials there on this visit by Pelosi? What could happen? And by the way, Beijing has promised a response. What kind of response are we talking about? Well, Dom, uh, Chinese officials have described her trip as a political provocation meant to embolden those in Taiwan who think of themselves as much more independent, want to chart an independent course, as opposed to what Beijing believes that Taiwan is part of China. Now, Speaker Pelosi uh, vowed U.S. solidarity with Taiwan uh, when she met with the president, uh, Tsai Ing-wen. She was also bestowed a, uh, a Medal of Honor by the president. And she had lunch with the president uh, who hosted it, uh, along with other business leaders, including the Chip Foundry founder, TSMC. 
Uh, she went to uh, the Taiwanese uh, parliament as well, where she was uh, promoting the CHIPS Act to Taiwan lawmakers. And then she met in a closed-door meeting uh, with uh, some pro-democracy advocates. Now, Beijing has responded very swiftly and on various fronts. Uh, diplomatically, they summoned the U.S. ambassador to China. Economically, they expanded bans of imports to citrus fruit, fish, and they halted exports of natural sand, which Taiwan uses for construction. They barred Chinese donations as well to two Taiwan foundations. Now, the biggest concern is the military response, because China has announced that it's expanding live-fire military drills in six zones around Taiwan, both in airspace and in waters, from Thursday to Sunday. They're holding missile tests off of Taiwan, and this is after they dispatched 21 warplanes to the Taiwan Strait. Obviously raises concerns about potential for accidental escalation, but also, at least in the short term, some disruption for the supply chain. Uh, Taiwan has said that these live-fire drills violate the island's territorial waters, and they've been warning um, Dom that uh, the PLA drills are near the ports, and they've also been talking with certain aviation authorities in Japan, in the Philippines, about the airlines, because airlines regionally are being instructed by China that they need to stop flying over what has been described as danger zones around Taiwan. So, so Eunice, uh, 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 around this visit, we are also hearing reports now that Taiwan was being hit with a number of attacks on its government websites. Is there possibly any link there to a government involvement with regard to their hacking campaign. We know in the past China has been publicized as a government-sponsored hacking-type entity. Right. Well, obviously, there's no confirmation on this side from the government that they had anything to do with those hack attacks on the uh, Taiwan government websites. Uh, but you are right. It was a presidential office that got an attack. They said that they were uh, tr fixed it after about 20 minutes, but that the, attack, that the attacks were about tw 200 times more than normal. The foreign ministry website also was down temporarily. Again, uh, no one uh, officially is linking the two, but that's not very surprising because the bans, for example, for the citrus fruit and for the fish have also not been officially linked. In fact, the reason why the uh, customs officials say they are uh, banning the imports of the, the fruit is because of pesticide problems. And then they said for the fish, it's because they found coronavirus on the packaging. But obviously, a lot of people think the timing is very convenient. All right. Eunice Yoon live in Beijing with the latest there. Thank you very much, Eunice, on that story. To more of your morning's top stories now as well. Outside of that, China and Taiwan, Silvana Hinao is here with those. Hi, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good morning. We'll start with Robin Hood because it's announcing it is cutting about 23 percent of its jobs. The cuts marks the second round of layoffs this year for the online brokerage, following a 9% reduction back in April. These latest cuts will be primarily in operations, marketing, and program management. CEO Vlad Tanev blaming a deterioration of the macro environment, inflation, and broad crypto crash for the decision. The news coming as the company dropped its second quarter results a day early, showing a decline in monthly active users and assets under custody. Lawmakers are reportedly set to propose new legislation 
putting regulation of Bitcoin and Ether under the watch of the federal agency tasked with overseeing milk futures and interest rate swaps. According to The Wall Street Journal, Senate Agricultural Committee Chairwoman Debbie Stabenow and top-ranking Republican John Boozman will introduce a bill today giving the Commodity Futures Trading Commission power to regulate spot markets for digital commodities. The bill marks the latest move in a fight among federal agencies and congressional committees overseeing crypto on who will regulate the assets. And Bitcoin struggles this year, resulting in a C-suite shakeup at MicroStrategy. Michael Saylor is stepping down as the CEO of the software company he co-founded, taking on the title of executive chairman. MicroStrategy's current president will take over as CEO. And Dom, the news came as the company reported second quarter results, revealing a $1 billion loss, mostly due to an impairment charge of more than $900 million based on the value of its Bitcoin holdings. To mark to market is a tough proposition for some very people. Tough. Thank you very Absolutely. much. Absolutely. Uh, coming up on the show, shares of AMD are getting smacked despite strong quarterly results. We dive into what's sinking that stock and what could bring it back again. And as we head out to break, some of your morning's other big morning movers. Electronic Arts shares getting a boost after top and bottom line beats for the first quarter. The company citing success in its FIFA franchise and the launch of its F1 game for those EA results up about one and a quarter percent in the pre-market. A similar story for shares of SoFi, the fintech company reporting a second quarter net loss of 12 cents a share. That was better than expected. SoFi is also raising its full year guidance, so SoFi shares are up 9% in the pre-market trade. And then PayPal surging on the back of its second quarter results beat, the company also revealing it had entered into an information sharing agreement on value creation with activist hedge fund Elliott Management which has invested roughly $2 billion in PayPal. Elliott Management and the results, driving PayPal higher by 11.5% in early action. Worldwide Exchange is back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. One of your morning's big money movers is AMD. Those shares right now down roughly 5% in the pre-market trade, this despite beating on the top and bottom lines for the second quarter. But it's all about the future with third quarter revenues outlook coming in below Wall Street forecasts. The semiconductor trade facing fresh pressure over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan that she just wrapped up. Fellow chipmakers like Intel, NVIDIA, Qualcomm and Micron, as you can see, they're all down roughly 20 to 40 percent on a year to day basis. Joining us now to talk more about this is Patrick Moorhead, CEO of More Insights and Strategy. Uh, Patrick, this report seemingly was good even the outlook, I mean, maybe it didn't meet certain analyst estimates, but it wasn't bad either. What exactly was it about this AMD report that has that stock down 5% right now? Yeah, well, you hit it in the run-up here. It was all about expectations. And there were two things going on. If you look at prior quarters, AMD had beaten on EPS, double digits, and on revenue and single digits. And I think Wall Street just just wanted more. I think some people are also slowly making their way through these breakouts. AMD traditionally hadn't broken out his business as, as in detail, finite details it did before, but this time they broke it out into four different businesses. And I think investors are just trying to work their way through that. In a way, I think that investors were wanting the Intel shortfall to be the gain of AMD. 
But AMD doesn't have the market footprint that Intel does, but I think that's what investors were looking for because for all intents and purposes, it's a two-horse race between those two companies. It's a two-horse race. But, I mean, there, are, there have been so many other semiconductor companies that have gotten kind of more notoriety over the course of the last several years besides Intel, and AMD is one of them. It wasn't long ago that kind of AMD was viewed almost as like a, a subpar version of Intel, one that was trying to kind of gain some traction. Now it seems like all of their business units, it doesn't matter if it's data centers or, 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 or graphics or GPUs, anything else, seem to all be making gains across the board. What is it about the AMD story that either has you bullish on it or maybe a little bit more cautious? And what's your call? Yeah, so uh, I'm bullish on AMD because I, I feel like for the first time, every one of the businesses was hitting on all cylinders. Many times, one quarter it would be client, then the next quarter it would be the embedded console business, and the next it would be uh, what was called an embedded and enterprise business, but you didn't know if that was Epic Server or not. But as, as I see the breakout, every one of them is growing, and they're growing big. I think the only uh, caution I might give is to factor in the macroeconomic environment related to PCs. I think data center, hyperscaler data center to folks like Azure and Google and AWS, I, I think those are going to continue at 30 to 40 percent uh, pace. And I think AMD gets their unfair share there. But factoring in that economic, uh, particularly the consumer PC factor, I think is important. But when I stand back, I feel like the market factored that in in this sell-off after hours. But I think we might see when the larger investors come in this morning, uh, U.S. time, I think we might see a little bit of a difference. All right. Patrick Moorhead with the call over on AMD. Thank you very much, sir. We appreciate it. Thanks. And be sure to catch a CNBC exclusive interview with AMD CEO Lisa Su. That's tonight. Mad Money with Jim Cramer, 6 p.m. Eastern time, talking all about the state of what's going on right now and maybe a little bit about that whole idea of Taiwan and its tensions with China. Let's now turn to oil prices easing today ahead of a big meeting by OPEC and other major producers, so-called OPEC+. Plus. Crude has been under pressure lately over fears of a slowdown in global growth and what it will do to fuel demand. OPEC Plus may keep output unchanged in September or maybe just raise it slightly. So joining us now is Amina Bakker, Chief OPEC Correspondent and Dubai Deputy Bureau Chief over at Energy Intelligence, our expert on the oil markets. And Amina, I wonder whether or not this OPEC meeting will put out enough headlines to drive oil prices kind of meaningfully back above that $100 per barrel mark. That's a really good question. And this uh, OPEC meeting is uh, being watched very carefully, uh, as you know, that it comes right after uh, Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia. Um, but at Energy Intelligence here, we're expecting one of two things to happen, which you just mentioned, either a small uh, increase in, uh, in production or just holding on to those August quotas for one more month. Given how volatile the market is, it's, uh, it's really hard to set policy uh, amid so many changing factors. So they might just choose to give themselves a little bit more time and think about what the next step will be. Consequentially, there are, you mentioned some of the things, the, the moving parts, the variables happening right now. How big of a story 
is the China demand side of the equation. Is that what's going to drive a lot of that kind of macroeconomic, top level economic discussion at OPEC plus today and this week? Absolutely. I mean, uh, the group is going to be looking at fundamentals and demand from from Asia, in particular China. That's something that's uh, being watched very carefully. Already we have an idea of what OPEC thinks about 2023 uh, demand. Uh, There's still a growth in oil demand, but it's smaller compared to uh, last year, which means that the call on OPEC, meaning that production from the group is expected to be uh, larger than uh, 2022. They will have to uh, increase production. But we're faced with a situation where you have very, very limited spare capacity. We only have two members of this uh, group that could substantially and quickly raise uh, production, which are Saudi Arabia and the UAE. So it's a tricky situation to be in. Talk to us about what you are doing in terms of coverage and storylines, Amina, about Russia. Uh, we haven't talked about them a lot. Uh, we, we did, obviously, in the in the beginning stages of the war with Ukraine. But Russian oil is still part of the global markets right now. Russia is still part of OPEC plus. It's the main part of the plus dynamic there. What exactly is the Russia story in the in the coming weeks and months with regard to global oil supply, given the sanctions restrictions that we have in place right now? Well, we're seeing more of Russian oil being sold at a discount to uh, Asian countries, in particular uh, China and India. So the flows are still ongoing, but it's just in a different direction. Instead, uh, to to Europe, we're seeing it more going into Asia. Um, Russia's participation as part of the OPEC plus group, we expect that to remain. Uh, we understand that it's very important for the group to have Russia uh, as part of a long-term uh, market management. So Russia is going to remain an important member even beyond December. Everyone talks about the expiration of the Declaration of Cooperation, but they forget that uh, President Putin and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman signed a charter which says that long-term market management uh, or cooperation uh, on, uh, on oil markets is, is going to continue on the long run. All right. Amina Bakker at Energy Intelligence, thank you very much. Good luck this week. Thank you very much. As we head out to break, a reminder, join us virtually for the CNBC Small Business Playbook. It's happening today. Get insights and advice from top, top experts here. There's still time to sign up. Just scan the QR code that you see on the bottom of your screen over there above the ticker or just go to CNBCEvents.com. Small Business Playbook today, August 3rd. We'll be right back after this. All right, we got a busy day on tap for investors. On the economic front, it's weekly mortgage applications, ISM non-manufacturing PMI for July, and Costco's July sales figures are all coming out. And the earnings parade, by the way, rolls on. You got on deck here CVS Health, also Under Armour, Yum Brands, Clorox, amongst others. Several speeches from Fed officials today as well. St. Louis Central Bank Chief James Bullard kicking things off with an exclusive on CNBC Coming up at 7.30 a.m. Eastern time on Squawk Box. By the way, James Bullard at St. Louis, a voting member of the Fed in this policy committee this year. Then it's Philadelphia Fed President Patrick Harker, Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin, Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari. That's a lot of Fed speak coming up later on today, Wednesday, August 3rd. Let's get ready for the trading day ahead. Bring in Mark Smith, Senior Vice President and Portfolio Manager at Wells Fargo Advisors, and Andy Caprin, Co-Chief Investment Officer at Regent Atlantic. Gentlemen, thank you both very much for being here. Uh, and maybe, Andy, we'll start with you here on, on just the market outlook. 
We've seen a nice little bounce today. We'll see if it holds. But is this an area of the market that still is feeling good to you right now for, for, for future investment? Sure. So investors are feeling good because the month of July was one of the best in, in quite a while. It was a really long hope for bounce in a year that's had a little in the way of good news for investors. Um, I think the reason it's happening is the earnings season is coming in much better than a lot of investors have feared. Uh, companies have shown resiliency in their ability to pass through inflationary cost increases to consumers. They're clearing a relatively low bar, but hey, profits are still growing. And that means that this bear market has some potential to peter out. Okay, so Mark, if that's the scenario, first of all, do you agree? And then second of all, is this a scenario where we should all be bracing for potential downside as significantly so? Hey, thanks for having me on, Dom. Listen, I, I, I definitely hear a lot of trepidation with my clients uh, when I talk to them every day in regards to going into this market because of what the Fed's doing. The Fed is aggressively raising rates. Looks what happened in the last four months with rates. Uh, and you're seeing that trickle down all over the economy from real estate uh, to, uh, to, to, to mortgages and how folks view getting into real estate right now. That's what's happening. And so as long as the Fed continues tightening, I think many investors are going to have some trepidation about getting into this market because what they're doing is intended to slow down the economy. Mark, you mentioned the conversations with your clients right now. What kinds of conversations, Mark, are they having with you about the types of things that they want to be invested in at this point? I mean, I know that it all depends on time horizons and risk tolerances, but but do they ask you more about things like mega cap tech or do they ask you more about things like small caps or international stocks? What's the interest like right now? Yeah, many of my clients, believe it or not, are asking me about treasuries. I mean, you'd be surprised of how many clients right now are, um, are, are very cautious right now going into the equity markets. Uh, we've had a little bit of a run in July, but if you can see what's going on, we, we had a Fed who says they're maybe slowing, tightening. Uh, that may not happen if, if the numbers continue to what they seem in regards to energy, food costs, et cetera. And so in that environment, many of my clients want to kind of stay with a little, stay nimble, stay in cash, stay in treasuries. They're not really asking me to get into these tech sectors because if you've seen over the last you know, few years, they're up 100, 150 percent. And if they're down 40, you could potentially have a little bit more to go here. Andy, I mean, we've said it a, new, a number of times over the course of the past decade plus. Market rallies over that time have been led since the great financial crisis by the same kinds of stocks. It's Apple, it's Microsoft, it's Alphabet, it's one point meta platforms. Mega cap tech seems to be the safety trade. People kind of turn to it in times of distress and they turn to it in times of dips. Is mega cap tech still a place you'd like to be? So mega cap tech is a place you'd like to own in a market weight. Um, I, what, I, what I see when I see it is I see Amazon, a, a world-leading cloud computing company, and, of course, a world-leading delivery-to-the-door company, Apple, a world-leading uh, smartphone maker. They're not going anywhere. They've demonstrated an ability to continue to maintain their cost structure and grow profits, in, even in a pretty tough environment. But there's a lot more breadth in the market, um, and you're starting to see a resurgence in industries that have had a really tough 10 years. Case in point, energy. Energy had just had a blowout quarter in terms of their ability to grow earnings. And frankly, in my opinion, it's just the beginning, um, because even if oil stays at about a $9,200 uh, a barrel price, they can continue to make a stupendous amount of cash flow 
on the back of all the cost cutting they've had to do over the course of the past 10 years. So there's a lot more breadth to the market. And I think that's important because it means investors have a lot more options. Investors like to have choices. They like to have the ability to pick and choose sectors and not feel like they're in a trap where they can only buy a handful of, uh, of five or six stocks. All right. And uh, Andy, before we let you go, just a couple seconds left here. Outside of energy, where else would you be? Sure. Uh, other areas that are attractive today is healthcare, in particular medical devices, on the back of growth or actually a, a resurgence or a back to normal of, uh, of medical procedures that have been put on the back burner during COVID. Okay. And then, Mark, last word to you here. Favorite stock or sector out there? My favorite sector is financials. In a rising rate environment, historically, financials have outperformed um, because of net interest margin and increased uh, profitability with mortgages and credit cards. I'd be with the banks. All right. Mark Smith, Andy Caprin, thank you both very much. Have a great day, guys. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next with the Dow implied higher by just about 140 points. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.